I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next conversation, my next podcast is with Rick Wolf. He, he's kind of a hard guy to nail down in a way as well. He's got such an interesting eclectic background. He comes out of a theater background, a director of drama. He is an interesting guy with a huge amount of knowledge and a vast amount of experience in the advertising world. He's been teaching. Uh, he's traveled the world. It's, it's just, it's crazy. But, but we talk a lot about what he stumbled, what he says he stumbled into this, what he calls a kitchen table conversation and I think you're going to want to listen uh, very closely to some of the stuff that we we get into and and one of the things Rick says is that you know we all have to stop having meetings and start having conversations it seems to me that Rick is really uh, fascinated uh, to find out what actually is really going on in 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 corporate cultures and in uh, in a variety of different settings anyway, and, and finding out how we can uh, create a culture of openness and a culture of curiosity. And I think Rick would say that that happens through uh, conversation. So listen in and listen up. I think you're going to really enjoy this interview for a whole lot of reasons, a lot of takeaways here, a lot of lessons learned, a lot of really interesting bits of business about dialogue and about you know how to make our conversations deeper, more intimate, and, and more meaningful ultimately. Uh, Rick Wolf, uh, poststone.com is the uh, website. You'll learn more about that on the podcast as well. And don't forget to check out my site, davidpecklive.com, for more info on my podcasting, public speaking, and writing. Stay tuned for Rick Wolf. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by, once again, another very special guest. And we are uh, currently sitting in a uh, Toronto uh, office, a uh, small boardroom at a, a hedge fund uh, company, which I think is kind of interesting for a lot of reasons and and but you know what we're not here to talk about finances today I don't think uh, Rick Wolf who is a consultant and a conversationalist uh, is here with us today he's our guest Rick thanks for joining us today oh thanks for inviting me so we're probably going to talk pretty specifically about some of the work that you actually do but uh, Rick Rick and I met recently at a workshop and he was interviewed interestingly 
and I was really kind of captivated by not only the content, I think, but also the approach that Rick took. And so uh, a few days later, we touched base through email, and I was thrilled and delighted that he said yes to the interview. So thanks again for, for joining us today. I think the fact that you're a consultant and you're interested in conversation, nice alliteration, by the way, uh, <laughs> fascinates me for a lot of reasons. And, and I, I think it has to do with partially the fact that I do a bit of teaching, I've got philosophical background. You know, how do we communicate ideas? How do we get things across to others? How do we, how do we penetrate those frameworks and the structures that seem to exclude others more often than not? So I'd lo how, love how, to hear do, how do we How do we get understood? How do we check yes. to make sure that, that, we have, that we are understanding? So they actually are called kitchen table conversations. This is something you sell, it's on your website, it's, you've written about it. Um, You've over a thousand of these things that you've done in a professional setting and many, many more in an informal setting, I would think. Mm. Where, where does the idea even come from? I stumbled into it. Uh, and, 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 and on the day I stumbled into it, I think I probably noticed it because kitchen table conversations had been part of my life since I was a toddler. My family has an incredibly lively uh, kitchen table culture, and, and so, <laughs> so that uh, made me re really attuned to its possibilities when in a business setting one day I participated in a meeting, in a meeting that was unlike any meeting I had <laughs> ever been in and was way more fun and, and I thought tremendously fruitful. And so I just parked the thought and, and started to noodle on the idea of, of really deliberately um, building a practice uh, with kitchen table conversation as the, the very foundation of the practice. So, so, your, so your background is in branding, marketing, advertising, pretty high level, pretty high stress from what I understand. You were overseas, uh, spent several years in, in Japan. It sounded, as you unpacked that for us at the workshop, when I got in a, in a little, done a little bit more research on your, your background, it sounded a little crazy to me. Sound a little insane, actually. Capital I. Uh, well, um, uh, there were certainly days that it felt insane, uh, and and I, I do have a background in marketing, and I and I did uh, have the opportunity to work with some great global brands over the years, uh, like uh, 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 brands from Coca Cola and American Express and Tiffany and Company, uh, and others along the way. Uh, but those are just uh, three of the better-known brands uh, that I worked with when I worked for an ad agency. Uh, I should also say that uh, adver advertising wasn't my first stop along the way. But before working in advertising, I directed plays. Right, drama, theater. And, and, uh, and when I started out uh, in consulting, uh, I didn't really notice that I was drawing heavily on that experience. Looking back, and, and it's looking back uh, over 25 years, I, I now realize that uh, my training and my uh, mindset uh, as, as a director of plays has had uh, every bit as much influence on my work as a consultant as, as everything I learned in business and, and from great brands uh, has influenced my work as Do well. Do actors take direction well? <laughs> uh, most take direction very well, but, but not all take direction well. Uh, and, and it's really up to the director. It's up to the director to find the most elegant, respectful way of, of influencing or guiding the actor uh, that, 
he or she possibly it's can. Interesting the choice of words that you use to me, Rick. It, it sort of gives me some insight into the conversational sort of approach that you take as a as a as a, uh, a consultant and so on. Um, is direction, would you say, um, a form of constructive criticism? Uh, yes, uh, uh, constructive criticism is one of the tasks of a director. Uh, a director is also a classic leader in the sense that a director must have a vivid vision of the show that, it, that uh, he or she wants to put up on the stage. The, the playwright provides a, a, a passion and, and a path um, and, and, a, and a structure, but the, pay, the playwright leaves out as much as, as is included, and, and the, it's up to the director and the actor and the designers and everybody else to fill in all the pieces that were left out by the playwright. And, and it's really the responsibility of the director, uh, entirely the responsibility of the director, to have a vision for what's needed to fill in all the blanks left by the playwright. Was that, um, was that the, you're finding the common thread? Or is, is it more than that? Is it? Uh, it, 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 is, it is certainly finding the common thread. It's finding the, the beating heart. Mm. Um, it's, right. it's, it's making it relevant to today's audience. It, it is incredibly unlikely that the best production of a play for the year 1800 would be the best production of that same play in the year 2016. That, that if, if somebody somehow from one era were to find themselves in the audience of the other era, uh, there would be there would be things that they recognize and things that they find incredibly weird and unsettling, and so, so the director's uh, one one of the director's job is to speak to today's audience. And 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 when you're doing a classic play, sometimes I've done plays from the Greek era. It's over two thousand years old, well over two thousand years old. In those cases, uh, your job is to bring forward um, the, the ideas and the feelings and the way people lived those uh, millennia ago at the same time as opening up for the audience what it is about that story that is meaningful today. And, 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 and why is this timeless and why does it have something to say to us today? I right. mean, I'm, it, it, I constantly it, am blown away and Oscar Wilde did not live that long ago mm. but blown away at his insightfulness and how, right. how present he still is and, the, and, and his writing still is. And if you were to read his contemporaries they would feel like they were from another planet. Mm -hmm. um, there are very few of his contemporaries are playable today. Is that right? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And that's the difference between a classic and a and a piece that does fine in its day, but can't carry I've forward. Seen, I've seen most of Wild stuff. I remember one of my favorites was Shaw, about a forty-five minute reading of the Ballad of Reading Jail, mm. and uh, there was about eleven or twelve different um, actors on wow. stage, and they all took little different pieces, mm. and it was quite a, very minimalistic, you know, from a from a. A setup, a stage setup, and lighting, and so on. But boy, it was delightful, and uh, just such a huge fan of Wilde's work. I think, it, it, to me, I guess a director. I mean, you got to know a little bit about everything, really, don't you? Um, you do, uh, and uh, uh, and and you have to uh, know a fair bit about the actor's craft, mm. uh, and you have to uh, ultimately um, uh, know a fair bit about the human heart. Uh, it's uh, uh, it, it's a difficult apprenticeship because mm. you you have to go through years of apprenticeship before you know whether you're any good at it. How much time do you 
and obviously I think I see links all over the place to what you're doing today. And um, the, How much time does, did you as a director spend hanging out with your actors? In other words, building trust, building that relationship before you got to the stage so you could say, hey Bill, maybe we should approach this this way. Because it seems to me that there has to be a fair amount of that going on. Uh, or do the actors just kind of, I mean, I think you can give trust and you can earn it. Maybe, maybe a good actor just gives the director trust. But, but yeah, do tell. I, um, uh, well, first of all, I, I was young and callow. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so um, uh, I, I, I think, I hope that if I were directing today, I would do it with more elegance. Uh, and you hear stories of directors who have great compassion and great ability to be empathetic with the actors and build up a strong rapport. And you hear about extremely good directors who are just awful human beings. Interesting. Um, who, who are, in fact, um, uh, 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 on the edge of being abusive. And I suspect, sadly, that sometimes it goes over the edge of, of abusiveness. And it's, and it's disappointing that, uh, that theaters um, uh, uh, continue to hire directors like that. Um, and, and, and they do it because of the, their track records. They do it right, because right, right. notwithstanding their awful behavior, uh, they, they consistently make brilliant work. And, 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 and that's a shame. It's a, and there's something kind of paradoxical about that, it seems to me, as well. How is it that somebody that can be so anti-relational in the environment from a, from a, a, a structure perspective or from you know, the, the work behind the curtain if they're so, how does that come out in a way that, that audiences connect with and resonate with? Uh, the, the paradox is, is that you can have, that, that's a really Im important question. The paradox is, is that you can have enormous insight as an artist and, and enormous capability as an artist, uh, greatness as an artist, without being a great human being at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it, 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 and, and because um, on occasion uh, people create an open space for a great artist to do her work or his work, you're not getting the feedback that the rest of us get to tell us that we're, that we're out of line. And so, so these habits build up over time, and you find out way too late that the world thinks that you're an impossible person. And sometimes it comes crashing down because, right. because people finally get fed up with the, uh, with the completely unacceptable behavior that occasionally comes along with uh, uh, great artists, and happily, there are uh, stories at, at the opposite end as well. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the great uh, musician Placido Domingo, uh, he he is uh, a, a spectacular singer. Uh, he is a concert pianist, and he is also an orchestra conductor, which is extraordinary to be able to, to perform at the top level in three uh, different skill sets. It's all music, but those are three very different skill sets, and Domingo performs at the top level. Um, and because I have close ties to the theater, and, and my wife, in, in fact, uh, um, uh, has performed in the world of opera and musical theater um, uh, as a professional for a long, long time. Um, and because of those links, I've heard from someone in the room about what a wonderful, wonderful human being mm. Domingo is. Uh, and, and so. That's important to remember too. It's not that uh, that every artist is a spoiled child. It's that, sadly, some are. Do you think uh, corporate environments need an injection of 
of, of, of conversation. Uh, and, and, and I bet you have definitions of, you know, good, better, sure. bad. Well, I, well I, I was worried that you were going to ask me if corporate uh, environments need an injection of a spoiled child. And, and, <laughs> and thank you for not asking that, uh, because absolutely not. And we have, we have ever that problem in the corporate environment, too, uh, sadly. Um, uh, do, does the corporate environment need um, an injection of more conversation? Uh, absolutely. Um, meetings, are, the, the classic meeting or the facilitated meeting, uh, both are effective. There are, there are many thousands of uh, facilitators who do outstanding work, and there are many thousands of teams and many thousands of leaders that do astounding work. Um, and yet, uh, I think it can be demonstrated that for some tasks and some environments, uh, conversation is just better. Uh, if we were to use a metaphor, if we could, uh, uh, if we could use um, uh, water with sand in it, or, or because we discovered a new filter and, and were able to use pure water, why wouldn't we use the pure water? Uh, and conversation is what we're trying. When we have a meeting, conversation is what we're trying to have. And, and yet the, uh, all of the, the, the little buckets and dividers that are injected into a typical meeting uh, stop us from having a real conversation. Well, people, people don't come to work to have a conversation, right? I mean, 9 to 5. I get on the train at 7.35 and... I don't have a conversation there, for heaven's <laughs> right. sakes. I read my paper and I answer a few email. And, and I mean, I think to some degree, I, I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but uh, when I used to work in, in a way more sort of furniture-like office, uh, you know, divisive environment, I can use a lot of more negative expressions and cynical uh, words for that, but yes. anti-relational, um, there, uh, there was this different ethic, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that, that, well, this is my nine to five, therefore. I can behave in a particular way, or I can behave badly. So, right. So, yeah. and, and so the the kind of question that I would ask is, well, given that as soon as we leave that environment and return to our life, whether we're with our family or with our friends, um, uh, uh, we stop having meetings and start having conversations. And yet, we it's not that we stop being productive in our life. We we do our most important things in our life. And, and the way we do it is in conversation. Um, so my view is, well, why wouldn't we do that at work, too? And, and not only that, but uh, I think that if you were to canvas the world and ask people, which is more fun, a conversation or a meeting, I, I'm pretty sure that most people would say a conversation is more fun than a meeting. And why would we not want to have fun at work if we can? If we can, yeah. And, and, and what my collaborators and I have been able to demonstrate all these years is that uh, it, it is incredibly easy to use conversation, real genuine conversation, um, with just enough structure surrounding it to have it be uh, every bit as productive as a meeting in the average case, um, much more product productive than a meeting in many cases, and fun all the time. Um, now, uh, of course, there are topics which are not fun. And, and mm -hmm. to be honest, no one has ever asked me to tackle one of those topics. And by that, I mean where there is really serious conflict. And so, uh, so I, 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 I can't comment as to whether or not we could use our kitchen table conversation in that setting. It would be an amazing experiment to try. 
Uh, and, and yes, there are also topics that, that must be handled by a meeting. If, to, to run through a project list, you can't have a conversation when you're running through a project list, for instance. Uh, and, there are, and there are some very, very technical topics. So analyzing a balance sheet you wouldn't do in a conversation. Um, but with the exception of those kinds of, of incredibly structured, granularly structured topics, um, there is an infinite number of, of questions and, and goals that businesses can you have. Give us, can you give us a good example of something that, 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 that pops up a lot for you? So you, you st apparently, so companies stay away from the really um, um, uh, potentially volatile issues in these the kitchen table conversations. But what's something that's sort of in, in my experience. Yeah, that, yeah, that, for sure. Yeah, it makes although, sense. Although although I have could benefit greatly probably. Uh, I, I, I have coached an arbitrator. Oh, okay. Um, and he was intrigued by the potential of kitchen table conversation in his work. Yeah. 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 So is is would uh, I don't know uh, leadership shift in an organization or well, well, let's, new well, let's coming in. Uh, absolutely. So 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 um, any shift um, a, a conversation is an ideal way of, of creating an understanding and, and moving towards decisions on that shift. Uh, a, a couple of, if you reflect on uh, your favorite conversations, and, mm. and every single time mm. I gather with a group, I ask them to reflect on their favorite conversations. We, we don't analyze it. I just, I just, at the very beginning, I just say to them, uh, think about your favorite conversations, and whatever you would do in your favorite conversations, please do that here. Well, if when we reflect on our favorite conversations, I suspect that as often as not, probably, and for many people, probably most of the time, there is a, a kind of a culture of openness in their favorite conversations. There's a, frequently, there's a culture of curiosity in people's favorite conversations. And, and in tasks like a shift in leadership, a new president coming in, um, in order to find where we are and 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 think about what it is, what are the steps that we need to take today and tomorrow to prepare for this, the change that is upon us? Well, openness and curiosity are uh, plus all of our skills and knowledge are, are good things to bring it with must us. Scare the heck out of some leaders, I would think. I would I would imagine a pushback that you would get from time to time would be, "Wow, Rick, we got you can't go here." Like, I'm happy to have this kitchen table conversation, but we're going to have to set some ground rules for you as the facilitator, as the leader. Um, you're right. Uh, and, and, and one of the things that I've learned over the years is that uh, in, in, uh, in an environment where there is not much context, hmm. um, I don't need to prepare in, in advance of a conversation. In an environment, the higher the context uh, of the situation, the more carefully I have to prepare. So what do I mean by context? Well, is it a, a working organization where there's history, where there are issues, where there are conflicts, where there are people with more power than others, where there are um, uh, issues that, are, uh, that people have been wrestling with for a long time mm -hmm. and have made no progress, mm -hmm. where, where there are competitors who are uh, breathing down their neck, uh, and and, and those of us who are asked to come in and, and lead a conversation, um, if it's an important conversation, if, if there's a lot riding on the conversation, then we need to prepare very, very carefully. And, 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 and there, are there are situations where 
somebody will say to me, here's the question we want to discuss. Will you come and join us next Thursday? And I go, oh, that's a great question. Let's go. And there are other situations. And, and let's say that that conversation is two hours long. There are other situations where somebody asks me to come for a two-hour conversation, and I prepare full-time for two weeks wow. for that two-hour conversation so that uh, I know as much of the context as I possibly can um, uh, in order to be, because there's so much writing on the conversation that, that I, I need to be um, uh, as sure-footed as I can be. And the people in the room ha want to know that they don't have to teach me. They want to know that I can serve them effectively as opposed to them having to slow things down while I figure out what the heck is going on. So it's fascinating. I'd love to talk more about some of that prep and, and, and the time that you probably do have to put into it. And I would imagine fees are structured accordingly uh, if you're spending several weeks of time prepping that, for a two-hour conversation. That's right. You know, that's right. Uh, you charge how much for a two-hour conversation, <laughs> right? Right. I, I can imagine getting that, that kind of feedback as well or pushback. Um, don't good conversations, to some degree, and you and I don't know each other well at all, mm -hmm. and I think we're having a pretty good conversation already. We're Feels well like that to it, me. Right? Yeah. yeah. Don't the most it, great conversations presuppose a certain amount of trust? And maybe you and I have that already because of that short time that we spent. Uh, maybe it's about demeanor. Maybe it's about intuition. Maybe there's something else going on there. I, I, so so I, I have a confession to make. And all these years later, a lifetime later, because as I said, like from being a toddler, our, our home was a home where there was always a, a good rambunctious conversation going on. Um, and, and, and I don't want to make us sound like the Waltons. We had as, as much uh, uh, going on in our house as anybody else. Or but, Little House on the Prairie. Or Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. Uh, we, but, just, we just dated ourselves, by the way, in a huge way. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, my, my apologies to the world. Right. Yes. Um, but uh, uh, but but a, a lifetime of, of conversation, um, and ironically, um, I I don't feel that I'm an expert on the role of trust in conversation. But but here are a few things that I can say. Um, one is that as soon as one person in the conversation starts to demonstrate curiosity, and and appreciation of the other people at, in, the, in the conversation, then, then that starts to change the conversation for the better. Just all it takes is one person at the table. Now, if, if there is somebody at the table who um, is demonstrating the opposite of those things and shows no, and has power, and shows, um, and, and it's easy to, and it's easy, it, it has been found by researchers that, that one way to, um, take power in a conversation is to just talk more. And so if that person has, mm -hmm. has mm -hmm. nobody to bring them back into the middle, then it, in fact, you're not gonna have a conversation. Uh, and, and that's, uh, so in, in an environment where there isn't a facilitator, there is never gonna be a conversation when that person is dominating. Um, um, when an, a facilitator comes into the mix, um, then um, relatively easily, most of the time, the facilitator can be helpful to the overdominant person and, and help them return to, to a, a more collaborative approach. Is that, one of, is that one of the classic examples of shutting down a conversation, one person dominating? Um, well, kind of well, uh, structure the ego, etc. Uh, well, and, uh, and my response to that one has to be a bit weird. I, I guess so, but thankfully, mm. I don't experience it. 
Mm. Um, and, 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 and because, and, and I suspect that that's true of most facilitators, that if you just, if you are trained um, uh, and do your job, then nobody's going to dominate. So it, it's only once in a, once in a while somebody tries to dominate and I, and I cheerfully and respectfully help them stop dominating. And notice right, my choice right. of words. I, I, I sometimes, because I like a rambunctious conversation, years ago there were times when I'd say, you be quiet. Um, and, and, and it's not that I think it's wrong to say you be quiet because I want everybody around the table to know we're having mm -hmm. a rambunctious mm -hmm. conversation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even, and, and even when I'm saying you be quiet, I'm trying to do it in a way that lets them know I think they're a great person and I want to hear what they have to say. But at this particular moment, you be quiet. Um, uh, but but uh, I, I've found, as I've gained more experience, that I have to do less and less and less I'm sure. yeah. to, to, keep, to yeah. keep the conversation the conversation that we all want. Yes, once in a very blue moon, there will be a person at the table who just doesn't get it and is just not prepared to have once, a conversation with the other people at the table. I mean, I, I, can't, I teach, and uh, it happened, I'm sure it happens a lot in academic environments, but a lot of the conferences I used to go to years ago, philosophy conferences in particular, you would get, you know, somebody had just given a 40-minute talk, usually a, a paper that they've read, not really a talk, mm -hmm. they've just read their paper, and then they'd open it to Q&A, and then you'd often be a facilitator, and I'll never forget this one time, uh, and I can't remember the academic's name right now, University of Guelph, and a person asked a question in the room, maybe 40 people in the room, so mm -hmm. it's a small, intimate, pretty intimate setting, really, mm -hmm. you would think that would lend itself to a pretty good conversation and dialogue after an event like they're philosophers for heaven's <laughs> sakes and so the person got the floor and this happened a lot in the microphone and chose it as an opportunity to pontificate and to preach mm -hmm. basically and there was and then finally it wasn't even the facilitator the person who'd given the paper is there a question here Whoa. That's hilarious. So it kind of shut the whole room down a little bit because now she's tipped her hand a little bit that she's, whoa, she's a little uh, uh, confrontational. She couldn't have handed that a little better maybe. And the facilitator just bailed. Well, and, and, and this person and, dominated, wanted a, a platform. You know? And, and, and it, sounds, it sounds like that in that unfortunate situation, the facilitator uh, was just inexperienced. Yes. And, and, and yes, uh, you can be trained when you when you take a course in facilitation. I'm sh I'm sure that. And by the way, I I'm self-taught, and so I, I can't I can't swear that these things are handled in a course on facilitation. But I but I can't imagine that they're not because it <laughs> because it's a big issue. It's a huge issue. Um, and 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 what the and what the the trainer would undoubtedly say is here's what you do. Oh, and by the way, uh, you're going to find that with practice, this is going to get easier. It, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. um, uh, Facilitation, facilitation is like surgery. I mean, it doesn't have the life and death consequences of surgery, but but what it has <laughs> it in common <laughs> maybe it will. But what it has in common with surgery is that it, it takes a lot of practice. Mm. Nobody in the world has ever been with a surgeon when 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 she was doing a procedure for the first time, and that patient when 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 a patient has a very serious procedure and they're sitting in the surgeon's office, the surgeon is always asked the question, "So you've been doing this a long time?" And the surgeon. <laughs> always said, oh, yes, I've done this hundreds yes, of times. And yes. it's true, because even a, a surgeon who is sitting with a patient for the very first time has been training for a decade yes. before they had yes. the opportunity to sit with the patient for the very first time. Now, now because 
facilitation does not rank in the same level of difficulty or the same level of risk or the same level of importance to society as surgery, it's not the same kind of rigorous uh, preparation. But, but uh, facilitators who have, have, have been in the room enough times are going to know what to, deal, to do when that person gets out of hand. I love the fact that you brought up a surgical technique. I want to talk about something that I think you referred to in, in a paper that you wrote mm -hmm. a, a while back about the, the, the kitchen table conversations, tacit knowledge mm -hmm. you talk about. And I think there's probably, depending on the environment that you walk into, there's hundreds of years of tacit knowledge that's being brought to this conversation. And somehow you've got to validate that, it seems to me. And maybe that's kind of what you were talking about when you said, you know, people typically once somebody shows a curiosity or an openness or affirms the other and says, wow, that's a great point. I mean, maybe I'm a little bit of reductionism going on here. No, no, you're, you're absolutely you know, right. It opens the room up. Right. It becomes more, there's a, the fellowship of the ring. <laughs> there right? is. There's, there's a camaraderie, there's a conviviality. Right, a, a community, and, and so so yes, yes to everything you said, and and I'm sure that that happens in any productive meeting. We we, it's that distinction between water with sand in it and water mm -hmm. that's had that's been filtered, so it's a pure water. By inviting people to have a, and and I've I've talked about it being a rambunctious conversation. Yes, the great, weird thing about conversation phrase. is is that we we don't want um, a, a conversation which is too sterile. We, 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 want, we want a roughness to our conversation. We, we, I, think, I, I, I think I can say that many of us really want a rambunctiousness, a, a riskiness to our conversation. And, and we can have one which is open and respectful and risky and rambunctious. And why? Because in our real lives, we have lots and lots of experience of being both respectable of each other and, and rambunctious when we're in the conversation. Uh, and and, and we're good at conversation. It's, uh, let's use it, let's take a metaphor from the playground, that whatever, our, whatever it is we did with the kids on the playground, it, it was something we did over and over and over and over and over and over and over again because we loved it so much. Well, imagine that somebody would say to you, hey, you know, this thing that you folks do on the playground, we can actually turn that into a tool. Would you like to do that? Who, I, who I, wouldn't want to do that? I think it's wonderful, I, the, the, the playground uh, analogy, because I, I think you're absolutely right. I've got an 8 and 10-year-old, Spencer and Victoria, the things they're teaching me, or reteaching me, I suppose, reminding me of, I think is, and I think that's what a great workshop does. You know, I, th I hear a lot of people who go to workshops and lectures and who are, you know, professionals, and they're, mm -hmm. ah, it's, I've heard that before. Well, yes, but maybe you didn't indwell it before in the way that maybe you could have if you'd been a little more open. Yes, the, the exercises were the same, or, you know, they, you know, they had the same book references, but there's, you know, I mean, Diane Ackerman said in The Natural History of Senses, the purpose of art is to shine light in the darkness. Mm, beautiful. And isn't, isn't that what great conversation's about? Yes. Isn't that what a great play's about as yes. a former director? Isn't yes. that what a, a great workshop's about? And, yes. And, and maybe it's just a little bit of light. Right? Well, and, but it's, and I love the playground, because if I go back to play, I'm getting a shiver. I go back to playground, I go, marvelous warm, fun, uh, camaraderie, you know, all those things. But don't we kind of, Rick, don't we kind of lose that somewhere along the way? This, this, we, we I don't, don't know, the education I, of our youth. David, you know? we don't lose it, we park it. Yeah, and the reason good. we park it is because nobody awesome. invites us to bring it in with us. And, and so that's, that's why my job is so friggin' easy. Because <laughs> I, I got awesome. lucky. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a body of theory which led me to right. the kitchen table conversation. I just got lucky. 
And, and if I can give myself any kind of a pat on the back, it's that I, when I got, the day I got lucky, I noticed it. As, you, you, as, you recognized it for some reason. Is there, is, was, was there a moment? Was it, was it a, was it a, was it an epiphany of some it, kind? It, it was a, it was a, it was a three-part epiphany. And uh, mm. the part one was to be in a meeting being run by a colleague and thinking it was the best meeting ever. Part two was, but, but then not giving it another thought. Part two was six months later, I had a challenge and I thought to myself, okay, I've made this promise. How am I going to do it? Oh, mm -hmm. I know what I'll do. I'll do what Doug did. Doug Bowie, a right. wonderful facilitator. I'll do what Doug did that day. By the way, I've checked with Doug years later and he has no recollection what he did oh, that day. Oh, that's Tacit. We're back to the Back to Tacit. Thing, right? He's just a so master to... facilitator. He, he knew where he was. He knew who was with him. And he said, okay, let's have our conversation. Let's do this. And it was amazing. Um, and, and, and then I didn't give it another thought until six months later, I have a challenge, right, I'll do what Doug did. I did what Doug did, and it was the best meeting I had ever done. And you remember that. Yes, um, yes. And then another six months later, I had a, an opportunity, and I said to my colleague, well, there's this thing I did once, and it seemed to go pretty well, so why don't we try it? And once again, it was amazing, and that's when the epiphany came. That, that was point three along, I had three points, I had a line. And I knew that I, I knew it was reliable. I knew it was powerful, valid as 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 an, as an approach. And I thought that the world would beat a path to my door the very next day, and I was completely wrong <laughs> because I had missed the bit about the surgeon's experience. The world, the the, the the conversation. Twenty years later, and it's more than twenty years later. Twenty years later, I hope that my conversations are a bit more elegant and a bit more fruitful than they were at the beginning but they're not that much different. Hmm. What's different is that, as we were saying before, I, I now have the experience that those, the, the outlier events, the black sure. swans, sure. The, the things, the unexpected, I now have enough experience that when they come along, I'm ready for them. Even if I've never seen them before, I've seen enough that I can handle the strangest oddity that can come up in a conversation. Uh, and that's what clients were waiting for, and they were right. I, I, um, uh, it, it is a very, very rare client who wants to use something which is unproven. Why would they? They, what, they, have, they have options that are better. Can we go down that road just a little bit, and uh, maybe, sadly, we're going to have to wrap up really soon, but the proven, you know, your word that you just used. Don't corporate folks, sorry for the, the label, don't business people, I guess, uh, tend to want numbers. They don't do. They want charts. Don't they? Aren't they? Isn't there an expectation of a uh, incomprehensible PowerPoint slide uh, that they need to, you know, reread and reread and then file and never go back to again? So they're not expecting conversation. They're, they're, I would imagine I could. I, I'm hearing pushback saying, "Yeah, well, this is great, but it's soft. It's soft skills. They're not hard. They're, you know, they're, they're not hard skills. We can't really quantify this and." You know, I mean, I work in development, and so we, we, we use uh, often uh, to raise money what's called a log frame, and it's, you can't get much more anti-relational. But if we took a conversational approach, a community-like approach to building one, well, that's where the real work has happened. And then you take all your findings, you put them into this chart, and Rick, that's exactly what it is, a chart, and then you hand it to a donor and you say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Right? And there's a bit of a disconnect there. And yet, the donor says, this piece of paper, okay, I get that. Right? Because it's, it's quantifiable now. Right? And in a sense, it's a bit of an illusion. And yet, it sounds like you've been able to break that wall down. Maybe not in every case, obviously, because there's lots of clients out there that you probably haven't worked for yet. But 
Well, and 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 there are yes, there are the heck. If I've done it over a thousand times, there are hundreds of thousands of clients I haven't worked with yet, or hundreds of thousands of situations where I haven't worked with yet. Um, and uh, I, I I know for a fact that not everyone who has come to my table thought it was a good idea. Thankfully, I'm, I'm proud to say that that, that uh, two of the people who have told me that their first impressions were negative, um, when they took a second look, um, did a complete uh, uh, turnaround and, and, and realized that there was not just more there than they, than they thought, but something that they wanted to embrace. Um, uh, because they, because they, on a closer look, they, they did realize that there were things that you can do in a conversation that you cannot do in a meeting. Um, yes, there are there are people who um, are are happy with with the way things are. Um, I, I would say that that any leader has a right to know that that what we're bringing in is reliable, and mm. and, mm. and and also not reliable in the sense that it's going to behave the same way every time it's used, uh, and that that's essential. But there's a second thing that that leader needs has a right to know, and that is that the work we're going to do is going to make a real difference right. and, and a bigger difference than the alternative. Impact. It's going to have an impact, and and that they're going to get that, that they're going to have a bigger impact working with us than they would if they were to use the other methods available. And and so when you're doing something which is outside the mainstream, uh, that's uh, that's a factor every single time the phone rings. People, the phone mm. rings because the the tried and true didn't work. And, peop and, right. and, and when the tried and true doesn't work, then people become uh, open to trying something new. Um, I, I, I'm going to tie this to a different dimension about, of conversation, but, it, but it, there's a really important link. Uh, conversation is a deeply creative process. Mm. And if you have a problem, that means that you require a creative process because that, that is the only route to solution, Cre creativity. Creativity is the only way to get to solution, and and so, given that the the essential nature of conversation is creativity, given that some people have problems that they haven't been able to solve other ways, that's when we get called, or that's one of the that's one of the situations in which we get called. Have you ever? It doesn't sound like it to me, uh, and I want to hear a bit more about your business and. and just as we wrap up, but have you ever really come up against a brick wall? Um, uh, yes, um, and uh, uh, and uh, there's a self-sorting mechanism that goes on. <laughs> the, the people who call have a vision that there is a solution to this problem if yep. they approach it in the right way, most of the time. But once in a while, you get into a situation and you find out that they are really, really stuck. Mm. Fortunately, uh, there are other toolkits, sure. uh, and, and as a consultant, I've been at it long, long enough that, that, that I've got experience in some other toolkits, and, and one of those toolkits, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a, a, an approach to psychotherapy called Solution Focus, um, and uh, there, there's a, a great Wikipedia page on solution mm. focus that gives mm. you a, a, a brief but strong uh, illustration of description of how it works, uh, and it, it is the it is the least mumbo jumbo of right. therapeutic approaches. Right. It, right. it is a very meat and potatoes, commonsensical approach uh, to therapy. I am not a therapist; I'm a consultant, but I I, I realized years ago that. 
that uh, uh, this real meat and potatoes approach to, to therapy had, had some philosophies and some uh, principles and, and tools that would be valuable to me as a consultant, and especially when people are completely stuck. You know, Rick, and, and maybe this is kind of a comedic and yet hopefully insightful way to, to wrap this up before we hear a little bit more about, about you and your, your work. Um, I think, I mean, I've been through enough therapy to know that, that I think great therapeutic sessions are really just good conversations, well, capital G. Well, in fact, uh, David, that, that's how I turned to research on therapy. In the beginning of my working conversation, I wanted to learn more about it, and I, everywhere I turned, I found nothing. And, mm. and really, in desperation, it occurred to me, well, therapy is a form of conversation. Mm -hmm. I guess I should mm -hmm. read about therapy. Mm -hmm. And that proved to be and true. now we're talking about trust, friendship, community, uh, give and take, uh, affirmation, encouragement, all, I mean, maybe criticism as well, but in a, in a, in a friendly, like as you say, polite kind mm. of way, rambunctious. Right, but but still uh, healthy and, and ultimately deeply relational. And, and and let me role play that yeah. how that how that respect and rambunctiousness play together. Uh, it, uh, you can say to somebody, you know, I completely disagree with you, <laughs> but I hope that my tone of voice conveyed that yeah. I, I like you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're great, but at this moment, I I, I, I just I just don't get it. Yeah. I, I don't get where you're going with this. I don't, yeah. you, you, you can yeah. and, and and when you encourage people. To behave that way, yes. there is more heart attached to the the information that they bring into the conversation. Yeah, it sounds like uh, we need you to be starting to work with politicians around the world. I think so that'd be fun. Honestly, I, I, I watch some politicians, many, most, if not all. Mm -hmm. Sorry for the sweeping generalization. If these guys would just and women would just be a little more open and honest and transparent, and 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 stop scripting everything. <laughs> And be so afraid, you know, of saying the wrong thing. We could not only lead to greater conversations, but I don't know, at the risk of sounding uh, a little trite, probably get to the root of some of some pretty significant global issues, it seems to me. Uh, well, uh, I, I, I hope you're right. Um, and, uh, and so let, let's do it. Let's do it starting this afternoon. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I can say that, uh, that anybody who aspires to be a better leader um, would be making good use of their time if they set out to be a better conversationalist. Uh, you, in, in the very act of engaging in a real conversation, you, uh, at every moment you are learning how to engage in a real conversation, you will also be learning how to be a better leader. Because you will be learning about trust, you will be learning about openness, you will be learning about curiosity, you will be learning about role modeling, uh, what it is you, you want of others, and on and on and on and on. It, it, so, it, it, it's a terrific natural school of leadership. So I'm, I'm looking already forward to part two of this conversation with you. Tell us a little bit about uh, where we can find out more about you, and I hope the book that you're writing. Um, yes, um, well, um, um, my my co-writer. Uh, oh, Lisa, you are writing a book. Uh, yeah, nice. In fact, I am. Um, uh, my co-writer, Lisa Francis Jennings, uh, and I have a chapter in in a book called Complexity Unraveled. It's available at Amazon. So that's Complexity Unraveled, available at Amazon. Uh, we are not listed as the authors, but Lisa is one of the editors of mm. the book. Lisa okay. Francis Jennings. Uh, we have a chapter in that book on the kitchen table conversation as as a process. Um, and also, uh, Lisa and I are uh, at work at, at, at developing a, a longer uh, piece that 
uh, that goes into a lot of detail about, about how to um, uh, use this uh, approach in your work. Um, and uh, uh, we hope to have it ready to uh, share with the world within a few months. And if I want to hire you, where do I go? Um, my website is poststone.com. Um, or you can just find me on LinkedIn. My name is Rick Wolf. And there's an Eon Wolf. And there's an Eon Wolf. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. My great pleasure. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.